Hi, this is Caitlin McFarland. And this is Emily Gibson. And we're the co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival. And you're listening to the TV Campfire. This season, we'll be bringing you some of our favorite panels from past festivals, along with behind-the-scenes commentary and some of our fondest memories about putting it all together, while also giving you an inside look to what's happening with this year's virtual festival, which we're calling ATX TV From the Couch. It's like a flashback episode and a spoiler alert all rolled into one. So get back on the couch, pour yourself a drink, and enjoy talking TV together. Emily, we are back and doing podcasting, except it looks very different. (laughs) You mean because I am staring at you on my computer with headphones on? Yep. And we've got these like telemarketer looking things, but I can still see your face, which is really great. I know you look very official over there. Thank you. From many, many feet away. Thank you. I'm glad to be doing something with you from far away. I guess we should... Start by saying we have always been planning to bring back the TV campfire around now and to do a show that would be releasing the eight weeks leading into the festival, which we are still doing, pairing, you know, old panels, past panels that are some of our favorites. This week's is complex, not complicated, but also telling people what's happening with the festival. And that has been the plan for many months. The new version, which still falls in that, (laughs) is that we are talking about a pandemic and how live events and small businesses maybe pivot and weather the storm and all of our new vocabulary words. I thought it was very fitting that our first episode was called Complex Not Complicated because I feel like it is complex and complicated, the current situation. (laughs) I remember when we first thought of the title of this episode and there was a lot, or this panel, and there was a lot of conversation on the definitions of complex and complicated and what those meant. And I can't even remember what we ended up coming up with at the end of the day, but knowing this current time and all of our current feelings about the world and the pandemic and the festival that we are still going into in seven, eight weeks time is all complicated and complex. That doesn't mean it's all bad, but it is all very complicated. Yes. I think we had decided broad strokes wise that complicated had a negative term to it and complex had like a deep, meaningful, layered turn to it. And I definitely think the current situation is both of those things. Uh, Yes, very much so. Yes. So I thought maybe we'd start, we can even talk about it because I feel like everybody has said this, but like time is both going by extremely slowly and extremely quickly and we have lost all meaning of time. I've found, I think they said it on Saturday Night Live on Saturday, but people said it to us last week too. Like there's no such thing as Saturday anymore. It's just like, what's today? Like the day, the day today is day, which I feel like actually works really well in the sense that I never know what day it is anyway. So I feel like now the rest of the world has finally caught up with me and we all understand there's no day. It's just today. There's no day. There's the past. There's the future. There's now. But I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about our last even like week, but week or two, but as a festival, as a community event, as a live event, as both uh, business owners, we've had to make certain decisions that I think a lot of people have had to make in whatever their fill in the blank lives are, whether it's, you know, about family or jobs or whatnot, but that this pandemic and current situation has had, because we do this 
our whole business is set to June. We've since about mid-March been keeping a very watchful eye on obviously the changes and things like that. But I thought we could talk about why we have decided to go virtual with our event and kind of the top line decisions. We announced this last week. By the time this comes out, it will have been about a week and a half of announcing that ATX was going virtual as opposed to postponement or canceling. But we did consider all of those options. Yeah. Well, and I think what's interesting is, I mean, it kind of the first big thing to cancel and obviously the most impact on us in Austin was South by Southwest. And when that canceled, not even a week, days before their registration was supposed to open, we both knew, oh, this is, this is big. This is going to impact Austin incredibly and live events. But we still thought June seemed far enough away and the way that the world was going that we were going to be fine. And everyone around us thought we were going to be fine. And we were actually, as other things were kind of canceling, we were like, oh, we'll be the first thing that comes back. All the, you know, we're going to have to take this break. And through, you know, end of March and May and April, and then May, everyone will like start getting back to normal life. And then we will be the first thing out of the gate that happens when people can gather again. We, uh, we said there was a very fine window that that was very possible. And I can remember when South by announced one of our staff members was like, look, we can't worry about us just yet because it sounds terrible now, but we all like took great comfort in it at the time. We're like, by June, everything's going to be fine or we're going to be wearing hazmat suits and we're going to have a whole different problem. And now I'm like, well, hazmat suits aren't happening, but masks and gloves are are, which was not a part of the conversation at all then. But I think it was, it was interesting. I mean, just very top line as we watched what you're saying, like thinking that we had June to recover was we, you and I kept making these markers. We're like, well, let's see what happens to Tribeca, which was like going to be in mid-April. But then when Tribeca canceled, we still were like, well, but we're beginning of June. We can still be okay. And every day was a different marker. At first it was, well, we're not going to decide anything until mid-April, like April 15th. And then one Friday, we decided we're not going to make any decisions until April 3rd. It was which two weeks was, before that. Yeah, right. That, it Friday. Was two, that Friday, it was two weeks later. We're like, we still have time. April 3rd is eight weeks before the festival, but we won't make any actual decisions until April 3rd. And then two days passed that weekend. We went our separate ways. We didn't really talk that weekend. Mm -hmm. We both came back on Monday and essentially had decided separately that an internal gut feeling, we just basically looked at each other and we're like, we can't happen. It's just amazing to me that one day was this very strong, solid decision that we were not going to make any decisions and truly 48 hours passed. And we just knew that basically our hurdle was even if we were allowed to gather in groups, we just couldn't imagine asking people to get on planes. We couldn't imagine. And it was insane to me because at that point, and even kind of still now, we had been in it for about a month and we were looking two months ahead. So we were looking twice the amount of time ahead. And we just knew in our bones that as much as we didn't know, we didn't think people would have recovered enough to feel comfortable traveling all of our panelists come in from out of town. It didn't feel like a hurdle we could get over. So we just, that was the first thing we knew was that physically we couldn't happen. Uh, so then of course we considered postponement, which honestly had a lot of problems for us, I think across the board. One was when is okay. Yep. There was never a date that felt safe. Even when you look 
you know, as far as you can into the fall, there was never a date that was like, oh, yes, by October 1st, everything will be fine. And we feel good about that. And everybody else was moving into the fall. So dates were going away very quickly. And then if you think we're still going to be back in June for season 10 in 2021, well, then you're planning a whole festival in six months. The balance of that seemed really uh, not feasible. So postponement became quickly not an option. So then it was do nothing or do something. And I think we really did feel and do feel as much as we don't know about this virtual festival that is coming up and that we hope everybody loves, we felt that we personally needed to do something. We didn't feel like we could cancel 2020. We had a lot of talks about the idea that this moment has a lot of space for innovation and help across the board from technology to medicine to community events, communities in general. And we are so passionate about our community and feel if ATX is anything, it is the people who come together, the fans in the industry that come together as one and celebrate this thing that they love. And in a very short period of time as two people who do not live stream or virtual, (laughs) basically anything. (laughs) Nope. Nope. We felt that if anything made sense to us, it was talking television from your couch and participating and bringing together our community in a new way. And honestly, it felt weirdly not risky at all because it was, the option was do nothing or do something. So why not do something? Well, I think, I mean, for us, obviously the first sentence of our mission statement is ATX celebrates television. And so that is the heart of what we do, but really why we do it is our community. If we were going to try and do something to keep our community together and make everyone feel connected, then we're losing the heart of who we are. So even doing something, whatever that looked like, whether it was big, small, opening it up to a brand new audience or just keeping it small and intimate with those that already had badges, we at least knew that something had to be done. And that wasn't even a question. Like, yes, postponement, we thought about for a second, but I think just canceling obviously was an option on the table that you had to look at, but I think both of us looked at it and immediately brushed to the (laughs) side and we never really even talked about it. Right. I totally agree. Yeah. And it's crazy. Again, talking about time, I think within a week we had decided it was no physical festival. It was a virtual. That virtual was going to strive to bring fans and industry together in intimate ways, which means sharing of living rooms, hopefully, you know, coffee conversations and you know, happy hours and having both those industry conversations, especially by June, what is happening in the television industry? Where is production? What are the after effects of that, which are rapidly changing? And on the fan side, still giving people something to celebrate that was nostalgic and giving them new things to talk about and discover. And then hopefully have events, you know, whether that's trivia or dance parties or bingo, there's lots of things that are I mean, even in the last couple of weeks that are moving so quickly with live streams and music is the first one, but other things that I think by the time we get to June through partnerships, we're really going to have an ability to have a three-day festival, not a, not a concert, not a one-day conference, but a three-day festival that hopefully really services our community, but then grows it. And so like what was very important to us, aside from programming this virtual festival, is making sure that any of the major pieces of programming that we had announced, we got them before we announced that we weren't 
doing a physical festival this year. We contacted all of them and they very quickly committed to 2021. We wanted to make sure that that still happens and that if there was a reason that you bought your badge, be it a parenthood reunion or Scrubs or Cougar Town or Oz or Justified, that you know that's still happening. Sort of ostensibly that festival is postponed to 2021 and we're creating a brand new thing for people to be a part of this year. But on that note, if you are a badge holder from season nine, a physical badge holder, and you haven't gone to atxfestival.com or reached out to the festival team that you should to transfer your badge either to 2021 or 2022 if you just want a grab bag. I mean, who knows what 2022 <laughs> is? Can't even see that. I mean, I feel like the things that we do know about the virtual festival, which is a huge learning curve, the fact that before we planned the first physical festival, we had barely planned a birthday party. And now we're planning a virtual festival when I've never even done an Insta story Insta, I don't even know what it's called. A live Insta story? Is there another term for it? Insta story live or IGTV. Great. See, don't even know what it's called. And the fact that I've never done one of those and now we're planning a three-day virtual festival, we'll figure it out. But the things that we do know, which we will talk about a lot in the weeks leading into it so that you can get a little behind the scenes and we'll announce things as we know them, is that it will be completely linear. So it'll be start sometime on Friday, go all day Saturday and all day Sunday, only one thing at a time. So no one has to choose between what they want to watch or what they want to virtually go to. I feel like that was something that we talked about was that in this virtual festival, there's no choices and no lines. I know. I'm finally getting my no lines wish. This is not how I wanted it to happen. And I would gladly go back to lines, but we'll take the wins where we can. But knowing that we will be going a number of hours each day. This is not a 24 hours a day festival. This is not a marathon. Uh, it will be reasonable times and reasonable times for programming, but that it will be a series of panels and conversations and events. As we've said, the community and making sure the community really feels a part of it is one of our biggest goals. So we're looking for the best ways to do that. And that the programming is going to go back and forth between the more serious conversations we are in the middle of a pandemic and we want to talk about it. We want to talk about how people are dealing with it, how the industry is handling it, how it's, you know, changing storylines and even still the storylines that shouldn't be discounted or forgotten about because we are in the middle of this pandemic. So really making sure we're having those conversations that are important to us, but then also having some fun. Everyone's sitting at home and watching TV right now and everyone's catching up on all the things they love and we're TV camp. Like we should still have fun and laugh a lot and have the community engage with each other. So those are the things that are at the forefront of our heads that we're really trying to figure out how to make happen. I think there's still going to be a lot of food and drink. I mean, guys, there will <laughs> yes. be, there will need to be some sort of uh, menu that we're all abiding by and watch list that we're all abiding by. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to come to be. Oh, we will share. I would say, <laughs> I don't know, you don't even know where I'm going with this yet. I think we should do four to five different queso recipes that oh, we share sure. with people so that people can know because people come to Texas and they eat queso and they drink margaritas. And so we should share with them when you can't come to Texas for the normal physical A festival. True Texas you can recipe. still do it. Yes. Yep. It's like yep. that queso crawl that you always wanted to have be a part of the festival. All I want to do is a cheesy TV queso crawl, and this is going to be the year, virtually. You're going to, people is. start stockpiling on the cheese. 
start ordering it now. You guys, if anybody has listened to the TV campfire before, you know that it will be very easy for Emily and I to derail into food and drink conversations. And I do feel like if we leave this section without telling people that it's a week out of Easter and we have stockpiled Cadbury mini eggs and Reese's peanut butter cups, even in a pandemic, that that was a number one goal that that I just don't want people to be disappointed in us. I don't want to discount anyone's feelings, but calm down a little bit on the toilet paper. Like, take what you need. Definitely have a good stash of it. No one wants to run out. I think people have calmed down. I think so, too. But I don't have that feeling about Easter candy. I will go to the store and I will take all of it. And that's maybe not nice. I don't know. I didn't take all of it. But I, I will just say that I went into a Target to buy Clorox wipes. They were out because pandemic, but I passed some Easter candy and I picked up a bag and then I knew I had to buy it because you can't put things you back touched in it. this. Yep. I touched it. So then I touched four or five other bags and I took them with me too. <laughs> you know what? That feels on par and hopefully you'll be sharing some of that with me. You can just throw it at my doorstep as you drive by. No contact delivery. It's a thing. So That is what we know so far and why we have made the decisions. And I do want to say in this new series, as we go into complex, not complicated panel, this new series each week, the next eight weeks, we're going to be talking a little bit about what's happening each week, the virtual festival, the planning of it. But I think also how those things are a part of what we're all kind of going through and searching, whether it's with your family and loved ones who knew that we would sign off every email with stay safe and healthy. And, you know, how we're all feeling and how we're managing and how no matter if you're in Los Angeles or New York or Austin or anywhere else in between, it's affecting all of us. And this will be a little bit of a therapy session outlet for the two of us. So whether you are TV festival goers, TV talkers, I think that there will be things that are very timely. This is the first time we will be doing recordings week to week. Each episode will have some of that as well as a look into a past panel and sort of the behind the scenes of how it came to be. We've picked favorites that we do think are timely to now that still tie into either shows that are happening now or topics that are happening now and sort of being able to look back and see how things have either changed or not changed. And the two of us telling folks our memories of those things coming together. And so funny enough, because we picked these episodes and which panels we wanted to release many, many, many months ago, the first one being Complex Not Complicated, which just the title alone, as we already said, feels so fitting for right now. But this episode or this panel was from season seven of the festival. So almost two years ago now, days are flying, time flies. Time is totally flying. But I think that in that sense, it's funny because we picked it, I think one because it's always, you know, a topic that we want to explore. And we've actually turned it into various series before of, you know, getting a different group of people together to talk about, you know, what is complex and what is complicated and what is the stories in front of and behind the camera. But these panelists, which include Mara Braca Keel, Kira Sedgwick, Mary McDonald, Taylor Dearden, Jennifer Caton Robinson, and is moderated by Sandra Gonzalez, who was at CNN at the time. We picked it also because Little Fires Everywhere is airing every week and Liz Tiglar, who's on this panel and also our advisory board and maybe something that we are fully watching during quarantine week yes. to week. Yes. <laughs> Felt like it was also timely to that because you could watch Liz talk about this and then go see some other complex characters on Little Fires Everywhere with Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington doing some some good work. I feel like calling 
calling those characters complex is an understatement. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's done so well. I'm enjoying it so much. We've had a lot of discussions on if something is based on a book, should you read it or not read it beforehand? I have come to the decision where if it's a movie, I feel the need to read the book first because I feel like movies just have to leave things out. If it's a TV show, I don't want to read the book first because even though things will change, they can at least put a lot more in and they're going to add a lot more. Where in a movie, you can't really add as much more in. You do a little bit. But so I decided not to read this book before watching it. But you did, right? But I didn't read it because it was coming out. I read it when it was like the summer read of 2020. 17 or 18 or whenever it was the summer read. I read it a while ago. So I don't remember everything. Do you remember who started the fire? Yes. Okay. Just curious because I have no idea. I mean, part of it is that like, I think I felt this way about the book and I think I'm feeling this way about the show, which I love. It's set up like a mystery. Like you're going to try to figure out what this big secret is. And in reality, it's this character driven relationship background story that is like less about the fires and less about Carrie Washington's secret that she's hiding or is she, I don't know, but like whatever it is they're trying to figure out about the new kid in town, it's like less about that and more kind of a socioeconomic representation, kind of two mothers sort of talking about like representation of that. I think the thing I'm loving about the TV show that is obviously not a part of the book is the music. Liz is just like nailing the music with her music supervisor, who I wish I knew her name at this moment, but I don't, but it's great. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. But it is new every Wednesday on Hulu, and I cannot wait for the even the finale, which is, I think, at the end of April. So you should definitely tune into that. But I was trying to think, you know, releasing this panel, I wanted to go back and think about why we put this panel together. Why were these people on this panel? And I think I was looking at it and I was trying to remember it. Like Mara was there just to do panels. She was just a panelist. Mm -hmm. Kira Cedric was there because she had directed a Lifetime movie and she was talking about this new sort of transition into a new role. Mary McDonald was there for the Battlestar Galactica reunion. And yep. Liz was there because Liz is our favorite, you know, one of our favorite advisory board members. So we require her to be there? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then Taylor Dearden and Jen Caton Robinson were there because Sweet Vicious had just been unceremoniously canceled. We screened Sweet Vicious and did a Q&A with the rest of them. But there was a small window of chance that it would either get saved or this would be kind of the final time they could all get together because when they did the finale, they didn't know it was the end. So it was this very kind of like emotional and special time. And we wanted this panel to look at both behind the camera and in front of the camera representation of women characters. And I just thought it was so cool that this group of people are writers, directors, and actors. You've got Jen and Taylor that had worked together. Mary McDonald and Carrie Cedric both came from the closer world and they were there not for that at all. And so, and major crimes. And so like seeing them get together in the backstage and things like that, just that this was a mixture of people that both were familiar with one another, had worked together, different jobs. And it really got to lean yep. into that like complex, complicated concept. And what I love, and so Jennifer Kate and Robinson, for those people that don't know, so she had created Sweet Vicious, which is a show that was on MTV that is now, you can watch on Amazon Prime, and it's amazing, and you should, and especially during this time, it's 10 episodes, go watch it, it's incredible. But she then went on to write and direct Someone Great, which came out on Netflix last year, I believe, that got... It was my introduction to Lizzo. 
Oh, there you go. And it was, I mean, so she wrote and directed this movie on Netflix and it got a lot of attention. It inspired a Taylor Swift song that now Taylor talks about, which is awesome. And so I love, I love what she's gone on to do. Like the cancellation of Sweet Vicious was devastating. And most of us were, I mean, still mourning the loss of it and wish that it would come back. But she's gotten to go on and do some really cool things and still has many cool things coming down the pipeline. So I'm glad that we got to celebrate this show. And now we get to go on and see her do a lot of things that have a lot of complex but not complicated <laughs> female leads on them. Or we get to redefine complicated and we can do all of it. So I think this was, I'm still excited. I think it's kind of insane that picking this months ago, uh, that it does tie in so much to what's going on now. And it gave us the opportunity to talk about the complex and complicated moment in the world. But I hope that in listening to this, everybody also sees both potentially where we are now, where these people are now, but then also the learning from where they were then and that it's not just something in the past it's sort of ever evolving so without further ado here is complex not complicated a look at a woman's character ladies this is so exciting look at this amazing panel we have here today um yeah, I'm geeking out. Um, but guys, so just to kind of get things started, we obviously live in a time where telling stories about women is kind of more important than ever. But as we all know, nobody on this stage would really be here without the giants that came before us. And I was curious, like backstage watching everyone like talk to each other, there's such a great community here. Um, who do you all consider your giants? Like the women you looked at and said, I can play characters like that, or I can create characters like that. Whoever wants to start. Lucille Ball, Lucille Ball. Oh, turn your mic. Oh, shit. Oh, sorry. Oh, turn your mic on. Sorry. Hello. Hello, everybody. Lucille Ball. I mean, Lucille Ball was a brilliant, beautiful actress who, um, you know, created her own production company and um, created her whole shows. And I mean, he, she was a very powerful force, but funny, but all of her funny was grounded in, in great pathos and, you know, and pain, you know, which was what made it so funny and real. And I don't know, she was a real hero of mine. I think Debbie Allen for me. I remember, one, watching her on Fame. I was like, who is this? And where is that place and can I go to school there? But when, I'll I don't forget, I remember I was, a, I was a stage PA on the Sinbad show. Oh and, God, amazing. And, amazing. and Debbie Allen, and the good news and the bad news, the bad news is the show wasn't doing well. The good news is that when a show's not doing well, people come to fix it. And Debbie Allen was called in to come help fix it and direct, and Sinbad called her and said, hey, can you help out? And she walked on that set with such command and confidence. And I remember sitting there, and she said hello to me. Hey, baby, how you doing? Yeah. And I was like, she saw me. And, <laughs> and I remember she even asked me to take her, I just, I just remember how she looked at me. She actually made eye contact with me. She said, hello, asked me how I was. What are you doing? I know, you, I mean, I know you're the stage PA, but what do you wanna do? Those sort of things. Um, 
and not to mention a different world. I mean, the impact she had on my life from a different world, and then I'm talking to her, and then she asked me to take her friend, take her car, which was a green Jag, to her, God, I have another San Vicente story, Jen, but it was to take, drop her friend off, and I thought the confidence she had in me, those little things had nothing to do with writing at the time, but I knew what she had done, and she was real and accessible. Um, and to this day, we are friends. I had the pleasure of hiring her and, and, um, and working with her. And so the full circle of that still exists, and even what she's doing. And if you know, if you know Debbie Allen, she's not stopped. She doesn't stop. She keeps going, and that's something that is, continues to be an inspiration to me for what I want to do. So anyway, that's it. Oh, that's lovely. Jennifer, do you have anybody that you kind of... Yeah. I mean, it, it does... It starts with Lucille Ball for me. That's I taped every episode of I Love Lucy, and I would sit there and cut out the commercials manually <laughs> as a young person. And I, have, I still have... I have all my VHSs of every I Love Lucy in order, no commercials. Uh, uh, I was an indoor kid. Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for me, I would say Nora Ephron and Carrie Fisher are both yeah. huge for me. Um, they are women who put themselves out there and, and redefined what a woman was on screen and in print and, you know, who a woman could be behind the camera. And, you know, I think something that is so important is not being afraid to ask for what you want, and neither of them seemed to be afraid of that, which I think is very inspiring. Absolutely. Mary, did you have anybody that you kind of looked up to? I think the very first woman that kind of blew my mind and um, displayed to me that a woman's mind was, on some level, her most powerful tool was Katherine Hepburn. Mm -hmm. And then later on, as I got a little bit older, I got into Lauren Bacall because, yeah, because it was like, oh, sexuality. Oh, so you can take a word and make it sexy and you can take an idea and make it sexy. And so between the two of them, I just felt like I was very lucky to grow up at a time where... You know, I mean, Katherine Hepburn was the first woman to wear pantsuits, ladies. You know what I mean? She just did it. So I love them. I love them. I adored them. And then, of course, as time went on, there were so many wonderful women everywhere. But I also grew up in New York on the stage in the years of Meryl Streep's emergence. And I have to say, I just feel really blessed to be an actress during the reign of Meryl Streep. <laughs> you know, I do. Even though I know she's taken half my roles. <laughs> and half of Kara's. <laughs> Whoa! Oh dear, that must have been the ghost of Meryl. <laughs> anyway, so... That's amazing. Liz, did you have anybody that you were... Well, I was, try I was trying to think, like, who's, who my, who's my person? Who's my person? And, um, like, Kirstie Alley from Cheers came into my mind as someone who, like, I... I mean, I just remember she had an episode. I used to recap Cheers episodes my, in, the, in a similar way, but I used to recap them in art class with, like, my best friend in sixth grade, and I was... Not that I... I Shelley Long was fine, but, like, Kirstie Alley was it for me, like, when she came. And she had a whole episode where she... 
Her nickname at like UConn was like Backseat Becky, and I remember being like, oh my God. <laughs> she was called Backseat Becky because she was doing stuff in the backseat. Anyway, I was like too embarrassed to even say it, but I just, I was so enamored with her, and I loved that she was this like professional, but then she was like a mess, and her hair was stuck to the paint, and she had a cigarette in her mouth and could flip it over. Um, and the other person that came to mind, well, Melissa Gilbert, Little House on the Prairie, I was heavily influenced by. But I would say my main influence was Crystal Chappelle from Days of Our Lives, played Carly. <laughs> I thought all women, when having sex for the first time, um, needed to wear a slip underneath their clothes. Like, I thought every, I thought those were like your sex clothes. I'm like, well, then I need to get a slip, and it's got to be like under my clothes, and then someone's going to like peel it off and scoot me up. I was just, I had no idea. But I was so mesmerized with Bo and Carly. It was like, life-changing, and honestly, I think why I'm a TV writer. Myself and Jen Houston, who's a wonderful casting director, who's here at the festival, cast girls, and Orange is New Black, and like everything amazing. Um, she and I were college roommates, and we were like, so we lived at Oakwood Home of the Stars in Burbank, and we were like, someday, we are gonna move to LA, and we are gonna take over days of our lives, and we are gonna bring it back to its 1990 greatness. Bo and Carly will be there, Jack and Jennifer will be there, and she still comes over to my house in LA and we like fish out. I mean, now all my VHS tapes, of course, are converted to DVD like a lunatic. And we will watch like Jack and Jennifer's wedding and order like Domino's pizza. So those are my, those are my iconic influences. Taylor, did you have anybody? Yeah, I was going to say as an outside kid who wore pants all the time, Catherine Hepburn for sure. For sure, right? Um, but also Carol Burnett. Oh, yeah. With that, that comedy is ridiculous. I, I loved her... Um, Gone with the Wind with the Curtains. Oh, my God. Brilliant. And I also love Jane Fonda. Yes. And Doris Day, because they were all kind of like badass tomboys. Absolutely. And uh, felt right, you know? <laughs> but, Liz, the, the picture you paint of, like, Christy Alley with, like, her hair or, like, the slip during sex or whatever it is, these things are just, like, anchors of authentic portrayals of women. Yeah, like yeah. you see somebody who's doing something that just feels real, that feels right. When was the first time, I guess to the actors first, when's the first time you remember portraying a character or reading a script that you were like, I see myself for the first time? Because we all pay our dues. We all take on the roles that we have to to pay the bills. But eventually something lands in front of you. We're like, this is real. This is why I do what I do. Who is that for you all? Uh, for me, I played... Um, uh, Nora in Doll's House and it's kind of a scary thing to admit that that was me <laughs> because you know this woman was so trapped inside trying to, to fix everything and be right and do it right and let, be the sweet little songbird for the husband which really wasn't my life but in fact I had a Nora trapped inside of me and I was this like really cool like bohemian actress in disguise. <laughs> so when I played that role, it was a revelation that, that women who, contemporary women who have all of these opportunities can be carrying inside of them this idea that the miracle in life lies in something that the patriarch dictates. And that just ain't true. Right? So, <laughs> at least in my opinion, and I love every single man out there. Except for you. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was a revelation because she taught me uh, 
something very profound about my secret limitations. Wow. Kind of the same thing for me. I, I think the first time I saw Laurie Metcalf on stage oh my gosh, in All My Sons as Kate, I, yeah. it made me realize what I wanted to do. Mm. Uh, but the part that I went, oh, yes, I think it was Viola in Twelfth Night yeah. for me. I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, just completely go against what society tells you and do whatever you want anyway. Um, yeah, I'd say that. I'd say Viola. And Kara? Um, uh, it was Callie Corey's Something to Talk About, Emma Ray. That I played Julia Roberts' sister. Yeah. She was such a badass, and she was just hilarious. And she always had the exact perfect comeback to everything. And she was, um, you know, no apologies. And she was everything, all the things that I... I, I really want to be and can't always be, um, but just just like deeply authentic and hilarious and uh, and fierce with her sister. And I, I just, it was a great part. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like, I, I have to get this. It was that moment, you know? And after those moments, do you feel a little like hungry for more of that? Like after you see something like that, it's, is it hard to take a step, what you feel is back or away from that? It's torturous. Yeah. <laughs> it's torturous. Because, I mean, I, I feel like, honestly, as an actor, I've spent much of my life um, making something, you know, making something better or more, more you know, three-dimensional than it is on the page. I think for women, generally speaking, it's often the girlfriend, the wife, the long-suffering. The, I mean, there's just, there's some, there's some really distinct, you know, um, role models of women that I think often get undernourished with good writing and sometimes you know you just do it because you have to do it or because it's a good director or you hope for the best and so it, it is it's really frustrating when that happens it's hard to wait around for great writing it, it, it really really is, is, is few and far between the great writers so yay for great yeah, writing. Yeah, we have some of them writers. Writers. on stage. Yeah, Thanks, got writers. Amazing. I just want to say something about the, the secret that I'm sure we all know that I'm not sure any of you know. You might know. I but, don't know it. um, And it's changing now because women's roles are getting more um, complex, not complicated. And, but the great secret was you would go through a script and the thing you had to do immediately was to cross out every emotional stage direction because they would say things like this, she's very angry, she's enraged, but doesn't show it. <laughs> this woman is an incredibly strong matriarch. She's been through this, she's been through that, she, but she's so vulnerable. Like, first of all, we don't need you to describe emotional states of character. Just write her, and we'll bring it. Do you know what I mean? And that is finally, I'm starting to notice, thank God, finally, because there was such a fear of women going beyond what felt comfortable. And, you know, so if you had a scene where you were angry back in the old days, you, you could count on how long it would take for them to come up to you and say, you know, could you just 
Jed, could you just, exactly. just, just be just, smaller, just, just generally. Smaller. Yeah. And you know, you know, your anger is really powerful, but it's not very attractive. You know? <laughs> so that's kind of what we were, I don't know. I don't know. What, how about you two? Like, I'm older, so is it... Hello, really? Um, so is it different? Well, I, do, I mean, did you experience... I do think there is that assumption that uh, women automatically are... I don't know. I don't know if it's that we're worse actors or that we need fully... Like, everything to be fully explained to us. But I've had it where a director comes up and explains, like, moment by moment of the scene that I'm like, no, I, I prepped. I'm, I'm good. I've re I have my notes. I'm, yeah. We're good. And it's just like, okay, so in this millisecond, yeah. you need to... And I'm like, no, why don't you just see it? Look, I'll adjust after, but not before we've started. It's, it's yeah. an assumption that we, we, we can't do it on our own. But you know what I really... Well, I'm going to talk too much, so just shut no, me up at any time, oh any of you. Yeah. I, I'm serious, because this women's thing is like, you know... I want to jump I'm, in I'm on fire, oh, honey. I'm just on fire. I... Oh... <laughs> But for me, I want to jump in in this conversation. Yes, please and do. For me as a creator, it's interesting. I used to joke privately, and I shared this on a, just a panel before, that I used to say that I was a documentary filmmaker when I started Girlfriends because black women and our nuance and our complexity and, our, and who we were and our trivialness and, you know, we were only given to be asexual or a bitch or a whore. And, and even at the time that I was sort of coming up to create. And so for me, I felt like I, I using my art or my platform, if you use all these sort of words or this, or my moment to tell stories, if there's a slight activist in me in the spirit of creating space so that women can be, for even more specifically, for black women to be. Like I remember, I, I, there's, a, there's a natural hair movement, which is a part of who I am, but if you go on, if you Google um, natural hair, you'll see black women's hair. And I know that me and Tracy Ellis Ross in the character of Joan helped that movement. Just by having the, I fought for Tracy to have her, it wasn't a huge fight. I don't want to act like it, you know, it was a tussle. But w I had to speak up for those sort of things. For Tracy to wear her glasses. You know, like if you see uh, Joan's character, she want, that was Tracy wanting to be that real too and that brave. And people are like, oh, she wants to wear her glasses? Like, yeah, well, that's not attract. That's the point. We, we like to take our bras off, our shoes off, our makeup off. We like to get out of that stuff and you know and we and so and we'd like to put our glasses on because we can't see you know and, and, and so and, and and but even those things and 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 even you know even for uh wendy raquel robinson who played tasha mack um just a fearless role and i know she created space and an ushering in of cookie lion i'm clear i know that she built an opportunity for us to have these things because we weren't even taking up the space we were we were like invisible we didn't even belong, you know we weren't even there in a lot of ways and then even more recently in being mary jane what i love is i love the character of mary jane but really I thought I was joked that the show could be called Being Helen Jr. because of her mother. That woman of that generation didn't get that voice. And why, 
just all the layers of, you know, even this unpacking this notion that black women are angry. Well, first of all, we have a lot to be angry about. Hello. And secondly, and that's okay, that to your point about angry, like, no, 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 hear me. This is why we're angry. But really that generation that didn't even have as much choice that her daughter does and all of yeah. these sort of, and that the anger sometimes is stuck between women. It, it's not, you know, anyway, but all, but all of those sort of, yeah. but breaking down all of these sort of things to make space, I think is exciting and I'm, Full. And I feel like I don't have, it's funny in Hamilton, you know, that song, I feel like um, um, I'm writing like I'm running out of time. Yes, I don't have, there's not enough time to get Usher in enough of the portraits of women and their complexity in a, you know, in a given day, so. Absolutely. To your point about fights, does anyone remember a moment where they really fought for something because they thought it was important and won? I wanted to hear about the victory. One. <laughs> There's like a billion stories and thought bubbles over each one. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I won't hook up the mic. <laughs> no, you go first. Um, I fought for Tony um, to be the hue, to be the hue of her skin. I, it was important to me, and embarrassingly so. I'll be, I was complex in this moment, meaning it was casting. We were in that casting off in the testing. So, you know, actors have to test to get the roles and everything. And we had gone through and we had to recast from the, from the pilot. And we went through, when I say we went through everybody, because I was, once Tracy was placed, she was of a certain hue and hair texture and all of those sort of things. And um, we found all these different hues, but I didn't have a chocolate girl. I was like, no, we're not gonna do a show about black women and not have a chocolate girl. There is just no way she needs to have all the features. And we went through them all. And there were some other actresses, black actresses, but of different hue. And I fought for Jill's hue. She had a, her resume said, Dallas cowboy cheerleader. There was nothing for me to hold on to, to point to, to say she can do it, other than her audition and her, and in the casting when they finally got my way, and, I, and also you know the pressure, they're like, okay. Basically, when this shit fucks up, it's on you. <laughs> I, I cried. I cried for two reasons. In front of all these people, I cried because it was real. It was a fight. And I cried, and I'm kind of getting a little teary now, but it was, I'll never forget that moment. Then I was also equally scared and felt the pressure of, if you fuck up, it's on you. And so, and so there's, every moment is a fight after that. Right, yeah, absolutely. I, I, feel, I feel like I fight all the time, and, and, and I, I don't see it as a negative thing, and, I, and it does, doesn't have the same, you know, it has a negative connotation, but really it is about, it is about trusting your own instincts and, and, you know, having the courage of your own convictions and fighting a lot of your demons that are telling you to be quiet or fighting people that are telling you you could be wrong. I, I am in a luxurious position of being, um, you know, I've been around a long time, and... Um, and so I have choices. Um, I feel like I actually always had choices, and I think that's an important thing to know, that you always have choices. But, but I, I'm executive producer on my new TV show. I just directed my first film. I mean, I had to f fight with, you know, for casting. I had to fight for casting on the new TV show I'm doing. I, I had to fight for, or, you know, 
let people know my strong feelings about um, <laughs> about That's you know direct passion your passion yeah, yeah. my yeah. passion <laughs> and I am I'm really passionate and I think that I can often get people on board because I make excellent arguments I mean I never would no one would mistake me for a lawyer but I I really have I see the whole picture because I've been a producer for over 20 years as well as an actor so and now a director so I, I really sense that I, I have a really great picture and always um, from the one of the first people I ever studied with acting was Stella Adler and she always talked about the piece you're, you you're a cog you're a moment in that but but you have to understand the whole piece you have to understand what the writer is intending like what's the genre I mean like like really understanding, I love the idea of you know being in the my, minutia of it and the myopic nature of it, but then pulling back, 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 back. And she always talked about raising it to the level of like life and death and God and devil and you know I, I I'm into that. Like that turns me on because because if we're not making if we're not really talking about big things all the time, what are we doing? I mean, really, like, so even if it's, you know, a, a lighthearted comedy, we're still digging in on a deep level because that's what makes people lean in. That's what makes people interested is when the stakes are high. Yeah. I love your comment about we always have choice. And I also love, yeah. to your point, the fighting is not a negative. It can get tiring. It yeah. can get exhausting. Yeah. It can feel lonely a lot of the times. But I also think, like, I like having the ball. If anybody's gonna fight, I wanna fight for the story. Um, so it also is a charge. And I think that's, I think that's something to know about oneself in this, in, to, in to your point about the cog, where you fit in the puzzle of making stories too. Yeah. And so anyway, I like that. I did a movie called Sneakers years ago. And uh, thank you. And you know, there were basically two women in it. Um, and I played the the woman who actually was in it consistently. The other woman had one scene, and it was seven male movie stars, and we're talking big guys, little guys, all kinds of guys. So we go through this whole caper, and she's really important to the whole caper. She's sort of the smartest person in the room quite often, and she gets the, we get to the end of it, and they're all going to get a reward for this caper that we pulled off. And in the script, they go one at a time to each man. And James Earl J Jones says, and what would you like to David Strathairn? What would you like to Dan Aykroyd? What would you like to Sid Sidney Poitier? And then the script ended. So I, so I went, okay. So <laughs> silent again. So I went, to the, I went to the director, writer, and I said, you know, I think Liz should probably be asked what she wants. And he said, well, yeah, but I just don't know what she wants. I mean, I don't know what to write. And I, he goes, and I said, well, well, what do you think? And he goes, well, she's so, like, great. I Like, she doesn't need anything. And I said, then write. I don't need a thing. <laughs> and he went, oh, I said, express the woman. You don't have to make up, she doesn't want a car. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so he wrote it in. And it worked and it came back over and over and over. And it was simply a matter of 
this beautiful man who wrote this great script really didn't know how to think about how she would think. But when I asked him, he did know. He did know. She didn't need anything. So it, it was a good experience. It was, yeah. And do you think that it's those moments that almost highlight the importance of having a woman behind the scenes? Like if he had a female co-writer, I feel like she would have said, well, what about her? You know, like in the writer's rooms especially, how do you feel like having female voices contributes to just the larger aspects of the story? To whoever I mean, yeah. representation is everything. I think if we're not represented, no one seems to want to do it for us. <laughs> um, and speaking to what Mara said about, you know, making a choice and then kind of, ha it, like, it, that's your hill to die on if, if it doesn't work out. I do think that there's something with women where it's looked at as if you if this gets fucked up, it's your fault. And when a man makes a mistake, it's like you'll get him next time. And I think I just saw this in a, a way that exploded in you know I think a good way, but also a bad way for the reporter when they called Patty Jenkins directing Wonder Woman a gamble after only doing an eight million dollar film and then being given an 150 million dollar film, and Colin Trevorrow was a discovery. Um, and I think that's exactly right. It's, it's, I think it's, it's those things and it's the way that we're also looked at and put upon to be everything. And if you can't be everything, then get out. And it's like, well, why? Well, I can't fail, like I can't make mistakes. That's me being a human being. And I think before we look at man and woman, it's like, I'm a human being and I'd like to be treated as such. And I still think we're struggling to be treated as human beings, <laughs> which is crazy and I, and you know, I think it's something that, unless we keep saying, this is, hi, 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 like, I'm a human being, I'm a human being, like, treat me this way, like, I deserve these things, and speaking up and, and saying what we want and not saying sorry and not starting sentences with, oh, <laughs> like, and really asserting ourselves, because, no, but I think, I do think, like, you laugh, but I think that, I do it all the time, and then I catch myself in later, and then I get mad at myself, and I'm like, why did you do that? And I'm so hard on myself, and I'm so mean to myself, because I've done something that has kind of been put upon me by society. So it's like, I feel like we're being given the beatings, and we're also taking them by ourse from ourselves. Yeah. Um, it gets under your skin. I yeah. mean, it becomes part of your behavior, the thing that you brought up, that I know that you and I talked about very early on when we were in our <laughs> wonderful spin-off <laughs> moment. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> well, no, I won't go into it. We talked about the tendency of writers to address what you said, to add apologistic language to everything. So if you were playing, you know, an amazing cop who is a chief, or a cop who was a captain who was in charge of a thing, or a president, or whatever, quite often the writing, if you were about to give a directive, would start with, I'm sorry, but I think that. Or they're a complete cold-hearted bitch with no redeeming <laughs> qualities. It's like the two, yeah, it's one or the either or. Yes, you're either apologizing for your power, you can't or be you're strong and nice. really bitchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that what you were saying, it, I think it's really beautiful what you said, that you, you don't even realize sometimes how, how much 
you're fighting against a gigantic pervasive culture and you're failing yourself and then you get mad at yourself for failing yourself but don't not anymore <laughs> as of this day forward <laughs> I need to record you saying that and just play it to myself in the morning like no yes do it um, on Sweet Vicious you all did a um, really I mean the whole show was about a really powerful issue which is sexual assault but I mean I can't imagine what the pressure was taking on a subject like that when everybody expects you to do it perfectly right because you're a woman and so you could speak to it about, a, about it a certain way can you tell me a little bit about sort of the pressure you felt going into that, like to get it right, and the pressure that I guess everybody can speak to to get certain aspects of being an authentic woman right. Yeah, I mean, we, we did so much research and, you know, we really, we spent our time with the characters and for me, I, I, had, I was so nervous that survivors would watch this and think that we had taken something that wasn't ours to take and put out in the world. Mm. And instead of it being received in that way, it was received as, I see myself, thank you. And it was um, a huge like wave of relief. Mm. And not only that, like myself and Taylor and Eliza and Amanda and Stacy and, and all of the women and men who worked on the show, we became part of a community of people, survivors, friends of survivors, parents of survivors, who were able to rally around something that felt positive and that felt like we were showing what it means to be broken and we were also showing that broken doesn't mean you're not strong. Mm. And, that, and that going through trauma and feeling trauma and feeling pain and dealing with mental illness and you know all of the different things that everyone goes through in their whole life, you don't have to be just one of them. And I think for a lot of my childhood, I saw women who, you know, were archetypes. And I saw a woman, you know, you see young women who the pretty blonde girl is the mean girl and she's not nice. And then there's this girl who has glasses and she's smart. And it's like, that just isn't, that's just not what women look like. And I think if we can tell more stories where we, you know, broaden <laughs> women <laughs> and give them nuances and make them feel real. I also think that, you know, that seeps into the subconscious of the young people watching TV and even, you know, the, everyone watching TV. And, it, and things can start to change and people can start to mobilize and, and you know, storytelling can evolve. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. And I also find it, it weird because it's like, it, it's, it's accurate that we, I feel we do judge so much on like hair color and stuff. Like uh, Ophelia could not have my hair color. Ophelia could not be blonde. That would be really weird. She's a total greenhead. Um, but uh, yeah, I just feel like we were lucky to, and, and thankfully it worked out well, uh, but we were all very nervous. As soon as we stopped shooting and waiting for it to come out, we were like, oh man, let's hope this we, we felt amazing doing it, but there's always that like, but it could fall completely flat. And um, I also thought it was great that Jen wrote, um, well, my character Ophelia as like, even though she wasn't assaulted, you know, depression and anxiety are things that don't need a reason. And uh, so that one scene that she wrote uh, talking to um, Evan, who plays, uh, it was my boyfriend in it just saying that the guilt that I think p 
people, but especially women feel of having these, you know, emotional and, and mental issues without having a reason. Mm. Going back to apologizing. Yeah. Like even if your your chemical makeup is making you sad and yet you still feel a need to justify it and be like, I'm so sorry what you're going through. I don't know what that's like. And, and like, no, everyone's got their stuff and we should all respect that as opposed to justifying it in some weird way. Yeah, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That deserves applause, yes. <laughs> Remember, TV campers, this year, due to the pandemic, ATX Festival Season 9 is going virtual, June 5th through 7th, 2020. It's ATX TV from the couch. For information about the status of the festival, go to atxfestival.com or follow us on social media at ATX Festival. Now, back to the panel. To the writers and and Kira and everybody who does the producing work, um... We're kind of in this time where there's like a major lack of women behind the camera. We've, we've kind of talked about that. But how, what do you think is the solution to getting more women involved in the other aspects of production? And because it's so important, that's how we catch problems with female characters. That's how we f- make them better. Um, what are your ideas for, for how to do that? I mean, I think having women as executive producer creators, as, as showrunners, obviously, is hugely helpful. Um, you know... I know on casual, we, you know, hired, aside from two returning directors who were male, all of, all of our directors this season were female. Um, and that was a huge priority. Our writer's room is predominantly female. Um, you know, two out of the three main characters are women. So having that kind of scope in the writer's room has been great. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I, I mean, I honestly think empowering women and putting us all in positions and being redundant, but of power, we probably tend to hire a lot of women. I mean, men are, men are wonderful, um, but we've been working for men for a long time. I mean, I think about it and just hearing these stories, like I think of coming up and, you know, shooting my first pilot and, you know, for like the CW and having this action director direct it who seemed like such a weird fit for like a high school sliding doors pilot, but okay, <laughs> I guess he's who's available at C- CBSP and okay, I'm sure it'll be great. And oh great, there, oh there's a, another male producer who's gonna supervise you, wonderful. Oh, and then there's another male producer who's on it too. Oh great, so we're all gonna go up to Vancouver together and shoot it. Oh, why do I not seem happy? Oh, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm in charge of picking out what purses the girls wear and I like created the show and I'm like, how's this thing gonna happen? Oh, don't worry. I don't don't worry about it. You don't need to know. And there's just this like little girl attitude. Cut to it happened in, of course, the most misogynistic way you could ever imagine, with like girls being like blown up into bits of glass with dodgeball. And I'm like, what is even happening? But okay. So <laughs> the point here though is <laughs> that I think from doing that, I, I went into this pilot with this, I, I went in with this grateful attitude of like, you know, I'm 29 and I'm so excited that my little pilot is shooting and someone's taking a chance on me. And thanks, men, um, white men, white old men. And, um, and then my next pilot, 
I also did with a white man, but um, he was much more inclusive. And I did it with a female producing partner who yeah. was my age. And the two of us um, had a wonderful collaboration. And eventually, uh, you know, as, as, as he moved off to continue doing things, she and I ran the show on a daily basis. And it was, it was being with another woman who was my age, who had a similar level of experience. We hired a lot of female writers. It was all people, we were all kind of doing something a little above what we had ever done before. So we were all excited about it. And I, I definitely went into the next pilot saying, I'm not gonna just sit here and be grateful and be so happy they're making my show. I'm like, no, I wanna participate. I wanna have opinions. I'm gonna do it. I'm not gonna apologize for it. And run, you know, running a show is like, I would say it's wonderful training to, it's like everything you do all day is hard because you have to have a million hard, awkward conversations that are completely against your nature of wanting to have. It's like, oh, I would love to call that actress and say this inappropriate thing that someone's telling me. Oh, really? Oh, I'd love to tell her to wear different clothes to the test because she looks like a cowboy or whatever it is, you know? And you're like, oh. So you have to, you know, you have to be the communicator of, of kind of awful things. You have to think about how to do it in a not awful way. You have to have hard conversations and you get strong and you stop being afraid of them and you start learning that it's better to have an honest conversation than to avoid something and you and I mean to the point where I would I mean I've had conversations in the last year that with men men I respect that I would never think I would would be able I mean of course it was on the phone and I was like completely red and splotchy and about to have a heart attack but I'm like <laughs> But he doesn't know that. And I'm like, I will tell you how I feel very clearly. And I'm not going to, and I'm like, it's like you, you gain, you gain strength. And I think, um, so is it easier to have that fight every day with old white men? No, it's easier to hire women right. <laughs> and be like, I think, let's do this. <laughs> I think certainly hiring is, you know, you're going to give, Jen touched on this. You do need you need the experience. You need experience. You need to you need to see it first to know how to continue to do it. So the experience does matter for us to figure it out very quickly to do it well, so that not only you stay hired, but th there's another chance, another opportunity. However, I think there's another conversation we can have about how to help women, and I think it's identifying very early on to young girls empowering them, and I, that's, I, that, you, that word is used a lot, but creatively helping them connect. For instance, I'll give an example. And I um, was raised by um, three beautiful women, and I, and I just lost one recently. And when you reflect on that, you realize how much I was raised to be as confident in all the taking on the fights and all that. But I remember one of the things that was given to me, and I just sort of share it with you. I used to talk to myself all the time, talking about mental illness. My brother would say, oh, she's talking to herself again, she's crazy. Those are the labels that we tell, she's crazy, she's talking to herself, that's nuts. But because I was raised by women who are strong-minded, someone told, said, Mara's just writing. <laughs> She's just writing. I'm just, I'm making it up. I'm imagining. That's what I do every day for a living. And I love it. I love making it up. But of course, I'm drawing from real life. I'm using all the things that are before me to make this pie or script, however, you know, 
what metaphor you want to use. Um, I think I'm hungry. But the, but the point is, I think if we tell girls and we pause and we watch them, help them connect to something you see something in them. Help them, guide them to something or expose them to something. My aunt took me to see The Wiz. Stephanie, I saw Stephanie Mills in The Wiz at the Schubert Theater. I'll never forget it. I remember Sarah Jessica Parker was in the audience when I saw the original cast of Dreamgirls. My point is, I'm only having these memories because I reflected recently, but they were in me. They were in me and I carried all of this along to this moment, and I think if we want our girls and our boys to get to a place that would be of, of, you know, of the best person for the job, you know what I'm saying, the person who's gonna be additive to the story, that we help bring them along, not wait for the employment age, but that we bring them along from the beginning. And I think that's really important and empowering for girls. That it's funny, yeah, if they want to dress up, guess what they could do in this industry? You can be Ruth Carter, Oscar nominated, or you can be some woman's name I can't think of right now to give, who wins the Oscar or who wins the Emmy. You know what I'm saying? You can, you can be all of these things. And that's wonderful. And it's funny, a lot of um, costume designers are term producers because they're that integral to the storytelling of what we do. I'm just using, there's, there's, I think we have to break free of what we think someone else can do and we can take that ownership now for children um, and it will, it, will, it, will, it will go. Be a little bit more creative. Um, the one thing, I know I'm switching gears on you, I just wanted to say, I don't know how much time we have left, but I just really wanted to say, um, Thank you. In, in the spirit of complex women, and it's funny, I examine this in my art as it, it reflects being African-American, telling stories about black people. And one of the things that even black people put on is like, we want a positive image because positivity is gonna rewrite all the negativity. But if you do that, that's justifying the negativity. And so, and actually, I don't believe in positive images and I believe, or negative images. And meaning, I think it puts you in a box and chasing behind and you're always behind as a storyteller and an observer of human condition and development. Um, if I'm trying to rewrite someone who got it wrong in the first place. And so positive images can be just as damaging, especially to you women to put us in boxes, to be nice, to be likable, to be this, to be that, to not have sex, to, you know, that's more pious than to just be responsible about your sex, you know what I'm saying? Or, you know, all of these different things, I think that really between positive and negative is human, you know what I'm saying? And just let me be human, I think as, even as a storyteller is important to what we're adding to the complexity of all images, more specifically women. I, I always feel that way whenever someone describes something as feminist. Just the fact that we have to describe it that way means that the world is already unequal. And so I remember someone was like, uh, someone said Mad Max was feminist. And I was like, no, it's not. She needs him to, to be okay. And that's immediately not. But it's the concept that we keep having to justify it means that we don't have proper representation. So if we keep having these positive role models and negative role models, it, it just be normal. Mm -hmm. 
if everything's normal, then we don't have to be like, oh, it's a feminist film. It's like, oh, it's a film. I don't, I don't see why we have to always say that because, uh, because of inequality, I guess. Well, because of years and years and years of women who um, did not have the consciousness, the freedom or the permission or even the understanding of what it was to just be a human. Uh, or women's behavior in the 1950s, oh, well, you weren't there. Um, <laughs> you weren't there for sure. Uh, I watch a lot of TV uh, land, though. Yeah, okay. So, when you watch TV land, it looks fun. <laughs> right? Not, not Mrs. Cleaver. No, no, not Mrs. Cleaver. That's right. But there was, a, there, was a, there was an entrapment. There was a trapped mm -hmm. situation that I think, you know, the feminist urge came out of a necessary... The feminine mystique comes out of the 50s. Yeah, sure did. That was cool. <laughs> Thank God, right? I mean, Gloria Steinem, da da da, da. I'm just saying, I hear you. I wish that we didn't have to label that anymore. It, it's fascinating how at this point we still have, ooh, look at Wonder Woman. Look how feminist it is, as opposed to, it's a, she's, it's a superhero movie. I know, and she's got she's shorts She's a female. On. Yeah. But it is a marker it's, of the fight. I think there's a, there's this back and forth that the Wonder Woman was just a marker in the fight. I th yeah. To your point, it could be both a good film and then it also just a marker in the fight of where we are. And like you were asking about what do the fights look like? What are the mm -hmm. specifics? Well, that's a global one that we all know what, what happened. Yeah. I, and this, I, may, I don't know how this is going to be met. I like <laughs> labeling things as feminist. Yeah. I enjoy it. I feel pride in it. I, my show is a feminist show. And I think that there are shows that are on TV right now that I feel are feminist and that I identify and I'm like, this is a feminist show. And the people working on it would not label it that way and chose to go out of their way to say human being. And, and it's not woman, it's human being. And I know, and yes, like they're to a point, like yes, 100%, but also like own the fucking word. Like I'm, so, I'm a feminist and I'm really proud of it. And feminist means I believe that men and women are equal, not women are better. Not, it's not a, not a man bashing thing. It has nothing to do with, it is just about equality. And so to label something as feminist is something I'm very proud to do and something I will do for the rest of my career. And, you know, I, I do think that there's this like, there's kind of a paradox between like, we shouldn't have to label it because. That's where we are. We have to because of where we are. Yeah. Yeah, but I also want to, and I want to keep wanting to. Mm -hmm. But I think there's, I, I love the, I'm, I'm a feminist too. Yeah. I, what I always want to speak, was speaking to even in that space, as a storyteller, as an artist, mm -hmm. if you start from the point of base, base, being any label, you're missing, I think, yes. perhaps the complexity of being human or expressing the human condition. If you're going in with the agenda to be positive because so many images for black people were right. negative, or if you're trying to be a feminist, you know what I'm saying? And so yeah. I just talk in the separation from the art versus the fight. Yeah. Yes. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Totally. Um, we're going to go to audience questions because we are running out of time. So how many, oh okay, wait for the mic to come to you and we'll start in this lady in blue out here. Hi. I just want to jump on what Mara was saying about empowering women, um, and specifically to those of you who run your own shows. 
I had a really distressing conversation recently with two female friends in the corporate world about how they prefer to work for male bosses because their experiences with women bosses have been that they're working so hard to prove themselves or to pick a fight or whatever it is that it comes down in this negative way and that they find it's just easier to work for men. I was like extremely distressed by the conversation. Um, but I wanted to know what it's like for you as people in charge to have women under you and sort of how that experience affects how you run your shows and sort of the messages that you want to be sending to the women under you and just sort of what that's like to be sort of the boss. You know, I feel really strongly that we need to keep hiring women. And even even if they have less, sometimes, I mean, if, if I'm between two people and one has less experience, but it's but she's a woman, I, I will pick the woman. I mean, Jill Soloway says, like, all men should just stop directing. <laughs> and I, I have to say, I, I have a little feeling about that, you know? And um, so as a producer, uh, I absolutely um, will err on, on hiring women, even if they have less, less experience. Um, my experience being a female boss is that I'm an awesome female boss <laughs> because I am inherently a nurturer and inherently someone who wants to take care of their ducklings, you know, and somebody also who wants to bring people together, not pit people against each other. And, and I know for a fact that people work so hard for me because I acknowledge them, I greet them in the morning, I learn their name, I, 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 they feel seen and heard and known and, and, and appreciated by me. And believe me, I have seen it. I mean, you get that work back and it is so excellent. And, and, and so I, I don't know, my experience with, with women in leadership positions has been nothing but wonderful. And also it builds a community, really. If you, if you work for someone who's a great boss, you're learning from her and you're building upon, I mean, to go back to the first question, I mean, you're building upon the people that have come before you if you are a boss like that and work for someone like that. And you, I mean, and I also think as women, we have a natural inclination, like, here saying to create a family. You know, I look at like, I, you know, my writers on Life Unexpected, like we all just vacation together for Memorial Day with all our children. <laughs> like, it's like, we're, we are not just, we're not just coworkers anymore. This is like a family that we've built that, that goes so beyond work and we'll all work together a million times. And, and I think even just nothing is worse than getting a job for like, a male boss who doesn't want to go home at night, you know, when it's like, uh, no family, doesn't like his wife, doesn't really want to put his kids to bed, like, at 6 p.m., it's like half day, and you're like, oh my God. No, women, women, especially mothers, get in, they get the job done, and they want to get home and see their kids. It's like, we are efficient, we're making it happen. We want you to go see your kid, we want you to go see your kid. Like, we don't want to sit around and take 45 minutes to figure out where we're going to lunch. Like, let's go, let's go, let's go. Like, we want to do it, and we want to move on. And so I think, um, I, I, don't, I don't know, I, I, think it's, I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty spectacular. And in the, in the world of, of hiring and, and kind of supporting people coming up, you know, Hopefully, we'll all be raising feminist boys, yeah. and we'll all be working that way. You know, the next people coming up, yeah. um, everyone's going to want to get home to see their families, and everyone's going to work, want to work hard, and everyone's going to be communicative and nurturing and compassionate. Um, so, 
You know, can I just address what you said, though, about, about your friends? Even though I'm not, I'm not a producer, but I, I'm, I've worked with so many incredible female producers and writers and, and actresses and everything. I understand that there is an experience out there that your friends have had that I think in the past 20 years especially, as more and more women, thank God, are finally stepping into leadership, that there are sometimes the personality of a woman who, who has had to, without even quite understanding it, fight her way to a position. And she, instead of being able to change the dynamics, which is what these gals are talking about within the power structure, she becomes reactionary to the dynamic and then becomes a kind of a woman who would seem to be turning on her own. And I, I suspect that may be what you're talking about. And, and I think that that is beginning to change, right? Yes, and right? I would want to add to that, the understanding of that woman. In some cases, I have seen women be harder on women because they know yeah. what it takes to stay there. Yeah. And it's, and, but they mm. don't say it nicely in that moment. So when you were asking, I believe everything they were saying, I echo, and I think if I would add yeah. to that is, the, even there's a woman who works with us who I adore. And there's moments, but being a woman, I have to sometimes think, you know, because you can get in a mindset of business, 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 everybody get it done, get it done. And then you're like, wait a minute, she's off today. A woman might need another touch than how I manage men. And I think because I'm a woman, I can take a pause and just, and I like, you know what? I don't think I've, I don't think I've acknowledged her enough. Yeah. And sometimes just a text of, I really think you're doing great, thank you, is needed, I think, because there's such a, there is such a um, 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 famine for women. And also, guy, guys and ladies, that's also accept, we like that. We need that. I don't know if that, I don't know. Um, it's funny, I, I try to give it to my boys. They don't seem to like it as much as my nieces. <laughs> but but I, I think if I took it away, they would come ask for it. Yeah. But women, we do like it. I think it's okay to understand that difference and that need. And so I think there's sometimes I have to remember, oh, wait a minute. Have I managed to the, to the place that people need it as well? And those gender differences can come into play. And we could also talk about like Hillary Clinton all day long, but, oh but obviously, can we? but yes, in the lobby. Let's just stay here. Okay, but, let's just lock the door and stay here all day. It'd be amazing. We'll drink, we'll get some wine, froze, let's call her. But, but literally, like this idea, I, th I think to your friend's point too, women have been expected to lead like men. And I think that it's being embraced that, and women are starting to realize we can lead like women and that that is so effective and powerful. Yeah, for everyone. Lead like a woman. We're gonna end it there. Um, but thank you so much to these amazing women. This season of The TV Campfire is produced by ATX Television Festival in collaboration with Anthony Luciani and AJ Myers. For more information on this year's festival, go to atxfestival.com or check out our social media at ATX Festival.